you pray with me? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, O Lord. Come and take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. Take our hearts and make them one with yours. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in our lesson from Acts today, we pick up at the climax of the story of Peter's encounter with Cornelius. Cornelius, as Luke tells us, is a centurion of a regiment of Italian soldiers stationed in Caesarea. Caesarea is on the Mediterranean coast, what is today just a little bit north of Tel Aviv. If you want to know exactly where it is, ask one of our youth who have recently been diligently mapping out Paul's journeys and are very familiar with exactly where all these cities were. But Caesarea is there on the coast. Then it was a bastion of Roman culture. Markets, wide roads, temples to Augustus, gladiatorial games, chariot races. Caesarea was magnificent. Modern, luxurious, oceanfront, and absolutely pagan, if you asked a good Torah-abiding Jew. However, Cornelius feared God, as we hear in Scripture, and prayed constantly to him. But he is a Gentile, which means, of course, that he is not part of God's special people, the ones whom God has revealed himself to. But then one day, God speaks to Cornelius. He says, your prayers have come up to me. I've heard your prayers, Cornelius, and I want you to see a fellow named Peter. Meanwhile, God appears to Peter in a dream. And Peter sees a strange thing, a large sheet falling down from heaven, and in it are reptiles and birds and other animals that are unclean, ceremonially unclean, for a good Jew to eat. And the voice says to Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And of course, Peter responds, I wouldn't dare. Who do you think I am? I have never eaten anything unclean. Well, this happens three times, and Peter is perplexed. And then guess who it is that arrives on the scene? It's those guys from Cornelius. And the Spirit commands Peter to go with them. Now, Cornelius has assembled a big waiting party of uh, friends and relatives, and they're all anxious to hear from Peter. And Peter arrives and in no uncertain terms tells these guys that against his better inclinations, he has come to them. He says, I'm a Jew. You know that Jews are not supposed to visit Gentiles. How's that for a friendly introduction? And then we come to the section we heard read just a short bit ago. Peter begins to speak, and this is what he says. I understand that God shows no partiality. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. This message began to spread first in Galilee, then throughout Judea, after John baptized Jesus. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, it says. That was the key moment, according to Peter. How did we know that this was God's Messiah? Because God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power at his baptism. 
That is what I'd like to invite you to think with me about this morning. Today is the feast of the baptism of our Lord. And so what we want to do is to think about what happens at the baptism of our Lord. Now to do this, we need to backtrack a little bit. Uh, We actually have to make two historical stops. The first, I think, is the obvious one. Just a few years before Peter and Cornelius meet up. It's our gospel lesson. John's ministry is thriving. You can sort of feel the anticipation hanging, hanging heavy in the air as the people begin questioning and wondering whether John is the long-awaited Messiah. And he answers them this way, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Sound familiar? It's the shorthand for the Messiah like we heard in Acts. And then John baptizes Jesus. Heaven opens and the Holy Spirit descends on him and a voice comes from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Those words then give us the clue to the other historical stop. It's several hundred years prior from the prophet Isaiah, the section that we, read, we heard uh, just a little bit ago. It's the beginning of what we call the servant songs in Isaiah, a rich, rich picture of the Messiah. It says, here is my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit on him. You see, the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism is an echo of what God had promised hundreds of years prior. And who is that servant? What do we learn about him? What does he do? It says he brings justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. He restores the forsaken. A bruised reed, he says, I will not break. A dimly burning wick, I will not quench. We all have seen people who break bruised reeds and snuff out dimly burning wicks. Perhaps we too, in our pride, have cynically ruptured someone's battered or fading faith. And truth be told, if we're honest with ourselves, we are all bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. We are deeply bent and broken people. But the promise of Isaiah is that the Lord's anointed won't crush you. Although it may be the way of the world to walk all over you, intellectually, physically, emotionally, he won't. He will bring light to the nations, to all people, Isaiah says. He will bring the prisoners out. He will draw us who sit in darkness out into light. So when Luke says a voice came from heaven proclaiming, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased, the people know exactly what this means. It's the long-awaited servant from Isaiah. They're glorious words because for so very long God could not say that about a human being. He pronounced it, of course, at creation when he looked at Adam and Eve and he said, very good. Like Jesus, we came from God, we had our origin in him, yet so much awful has come between us and God. But we're nevertheless, you and I, we're nevertheless hardwired to desire to hear those words, 
We long for God's good pleasure. You and I, we crave acceptance. We will scratch it from the walls. We will try to pull it out of others. But at the end of the day, it is God's approval that we really want, that we really need. And then we hear that there is a human being in whom God is well-pleased. As Karl Barth, the great Swiss pastor and theologian of last century, put it, the Savior stands in the bright light of God's good pleasure as the human being that God says is right. Here, God's good pleasure broke into the world again. But those words are spoken of Jesus, of course, not us. God's favor has returned to humanity, but not to us. We are still alienated, lost, confused, and bent. That is, of course, the case if we listen to those words detached from Jesus' baptism. Friends, Jesus was baptized. Think about that for a moment. Jesus was baptized. Why was Jesus baptized? What is baptism? It's cleansing, right? It's based in Jewish ritual purification rites. Jesus was baptized for the forgiveness of sins, Scripture says. Not for the forgiveness of his sins, but our sins. It's the same reason he died on the cross. Not for his sins, but for our sins. He is baptized to identify with us, to be in solidarity with us, to join us to him, so that we would be the recipients of the benefits of his death and of his resurrection. For those of us who have longed for his coming, he has drawn us to him. We then, as St. Paul tells us, are co-heirs with Jesus. We're adopted children of God, and if children of God rejoin to the Father through the baptized new Adam, through Jesus, whom God was so well pleased with, then we, too, become heirs of those glorious words of divine approval. In Jesus, the relationship with our Heavenly Father has been restored. So although these were words originally spoken of Jesus, they become ours too. What God says of him, he says of us all. The whole point of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, is that it makes it possible for you and me to hear those same words. You are your Heavenly Father's beloved son or daughter, and he is well pleased with you. That is a crucial word to hear, whether we've had earthly fathers who loved us or did not. One of the unfortunate results of living in a fallen world is that fatherhood itself is fractured. I'm going to go on here in a few moments and talk about other implications of Jesus' baptism for us. But let those words sink in, brothers and sisters. You are my child, whom I love. I delight in you. If you hear nothing else today, hear that. We must hear those words from our Father in heaven. They rearrange us. They put us back together. They build up our hearts in a way that is absolutely necessary. So what's the big deal with God's good pleasure? Why do we hunger for it so much? Let me tell you a story. It's one that I perhaps have shared before, but I think it bears repeating. 
A few years ago, a friend of mine was driving his two teenage boys to school one morning, and they had with them, at the time, another boy about the same age. I'm going to call him Terrence, who is currently staying with them. Terrence's father was out of the picture, and his mother was, in fact, very ill and often in the hospital. In fact, just a few months after uh, this story takes place, she would die. Now, my friend's oldest son, Joe, had gotten a haircut the night before, and he was commenting on how well he thought it had come out. In fact, he thought, this might be the best haircut that I've ever gotten in my life, and he's raving about it. Well, that morning, the following morning, they drive on a little further and pick up other boys from the neighborhood, and of course what happens is one of the boys gets in, looks at Joe, and is like, Dude, nice haircut. I love it. And Joe's response. Uh, yeah, I don't really like it. It's really terrible. I actually hate it. And his dad, as teenage boys are wont to do, right? Um, his dad is like driving. What? Huh? Uh, you were just saying how much you really liked the haircut. And so he confronts Joe about it. And then Joe, a boy of about 13 years old, uttered these fateful words to his dad. Shut up and drive. <laughs> the fury that came cascading through my friend's body, he says, cannot be described. You can't imagine the terror. He almost wrecked the car into a phone pole. He somehow found a way to pull off onto a sidewalk and proceeded to just lay into his son. The way he says it, I unleash terror on that poor boy's soul. Silence the rest of the car ride. They get to school and everyone, of course, is trying to shuffle out just as quick as they possibly can. My friend says to his son, Joe, you stay here. And when my friend was telling the story, he says, you should have seen Terrence's eyes. I think he, would, he thought he was never going to see Joe alive again after that. Now, there's something you need to know about my friend, and that is this. When he was young, very young, I think he was only about four years old, his mother was killed in a car accident. And he'll tell you, he'll be the first one to tell you, that you don't know what that does to you. Panic sets in whenever you call home and no one answers. You realize just how very short life is. And so in that moment, when the other four boys had exited the car, my friend, of course, still simmering, turned to his son, and he said, look, no idea what's going to happen today. There's a chance I may, I may never see you again, and so I don't want those to be the last words that you go to school on. And so I want you to know this, that I love you very much, that I'm proud of you. And in fact, he says, what came to his mind somehow were these very words from our gospel passage, and he said them to his son, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Later that afternoon, the boys get home, and Terrence comes rushing in and finds my friend and blurts out, what happened to Joe after I got out of the car? What did you say? And my friend thought, well, that's not really for me to disclose to you. That's sort of between me and him. And then he thought that this is a word, too, that Terrence needs to hear, in which he deeply felt about Terence, And so he told him, I don't know what may happen this evening, so I want you to know 
as well, that I love you, that I'm proud of you. And Terrence, with big tears, filling his eyes, said that no one had ever told him that before. It altered him. You see, like Joe and Terrence, if you are accepted by your Heavenly Father, it grants deep, incomprehensible joy. We become a new kind of person. We are freed from the dark walls, the dark prison walls of doubt, of despair, of self-loathing, of wallowing in our pain and our brokenness. We're rescued from the voices that rant against us. If you are accepted by your Heavenly Father, it frees you to live without having to prove yourself, without inhibitions about hedging the truth, without anxiety, without passivity. But the good news doesn't stop there. We become participants, Scripture says, in Jesus' ministry through his baptism. We are enabled, we are empowered We, too, receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We are invited into his light-bringing ministry with power. We become a people who no longer walk over people to get to where we want to be or where we want our families to stack up in the eyes of the world, but we become broken reed menders and dim-wick kindlers. Through Jesus' baptism, we are brought into the ministry of the servant from Isaiah, co-laborers, in manifesting who Jesus is to the world. You know, I've often thought of those words, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, in the context of academic teaching, or of any teaching in general. And I've prayed with the psalm, O Lord, do not let those who hope in you be driven away because of me. Just recently it was that my brother was relating to me how nearly all of his friends that he had gone to church with in elementary school and middle school had since then walked away or seriously doubted the faith. And I was reminded yet again of ministering among bruised, jaded reeds, people whose faith is hanging by a thread, how our pursuits of knowledge must never succumb to simply discrediting cherished beliefs no matter how far off the mark they may be, but of marshalling faith in the ears of those who listen to us. Jesus, who had all knowledge, did not break bruised reeds or extinguish dimly burning wicks. And so, friends, we are invited to be a fellow worker with Jesus in the opening of the heavens, That's the baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's the baptism with the Holy Spirit and power that Luke talks about in the Acts of the Apostles. That's why Peter begins his great sermon to Cornelius and his household by saying, the word first began to be diffused to the nether reaches of Israel. When? When John baptized Jesus. When God anointed his servants with the Holy Spirit and with power. You know, Jesus' birth narrative only occurs in two of the Gospels. His baptism is recorded in all four Gospels. It is that important. And now what Peter has not to this point realized is that Jesus' baptism, his life and death that brings cleansing from sin, is extended to the Gentiles, to all nations, to all people. That, my friends, is the season of Epiphany in a nutshell. 
In Epiphany, we are celebrating the appearance of Jesus of the Jews to the nations of the world. We are saying that Jesus taking on human flesh is not just good news for the people who have always followed God, but for all humanity. Let me put it another way. At Jesus' baptism, for the first time, the Trinity, foreshadowed in many ways in the Old Testament, is clearly manifested. The Spirit descends on the Son, and at the same moment, the Father's voice is audibly conveyed from heaven. Salvation, the servant's mission, only makes sense in a Trinitarian context. And we, by sharing in Jesus' baptism, are brought into the life of the Trinity. We are invited into that reality. This is what is going to occur when young Christopher is baptized here momentarily. We bring a helpless little one into the orb of God's mercy and grace. And we trust that as a good word is spoken over this little child by the church, that the spirit will begin to work and to bring him to the place as he grows and matures, that he will know that the word of his own life is inadequate, but the word of Christ's righteousness for him is what sets him apart as a beloved son of God. So friends, instead of the aimless, confused, stumbling through life that ordinarily plagues us, we are anointed, don't forget that, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Why? Because the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. He is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the firstborn of all creation, good, whole, right creation, the firstborn from the dead, as Colossians 1 says. We who were ruined, we who were dead in our sins, are reborn because we are joined to him. Instead of the many wild, competing, cacophonous voices that fight for our attention in our souls, we hear one clarion voice, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Why? Because he is my beloved son, and in him, I am most pleased. Amen. Amen.